Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. This week's guest is visionary restaurateur and entrepreneur Maurice Terzini. Maurice has drawn on his Italian heritage and combined it with his passions, food, music, art, fashion and design and in the process has created a contemporary dining aesthetic that has blazed trails throughout the Australian hospitality industry. A modest bloke with the punk sensibility, fierce work ethic and attention to detail bar none. The interior design of his restaurants, the locations, the branding, marketing materials, not to mention the food and service, is the stuff of legend. At the age of 23, he opened his first venture, Cafe Ecachina, on Melbourne's then-undiscovered Chapel Street. With the cafe radically altering perceptions and conventions around the dining scene at the time, offering high quality in a cafe setting. Numerous successful hospitality ventures followed, including Il Bacaro, the legendary Melbourne Wine Room, Cafe Vinny Spatini, Otto, and the spin-off Nove, capped by the jewel in the crown, the iconic Iceberg's Dining Room and Bar in 2002. Other career highlights include North Bondi Italian Food, Melbourne's Giuseppe Arnaldo and Sons, and Cafe Veloce, one of the first dining destinations to integrate retail and food, which was in Melbourne. Maurice's more recent hits are Chickabella Bondi Beach, which I ate at just a couple of days ago and is sensational. It's also at Parramatta, and the Dolphin Hotel in Surrey Hills. Maurice seems to thrive on dreaming up impossible visions in the field of hospitality and single-mindedly working day and night until they are manifest all the while bringing people together for conversation, culture, and of course, sublime food. Please welcome to The Blank Canvas, Maurice Terzini. Good morning. Morning, Lee. How are you? I'm pretty good. Good to be here, finally. It's been a while. (laughs) Well, it's pretty surreal because you've just kind of walked downstairs from upstairs where you live into where I'm living. Yeah, it has been a bit like that. <laughs> but here, yeah, anyhow. I've, I've had a, uh, a long run up to preparing for this. And yeah, well, you know, we've been living in the same building. So I've heard some of the tunes you've been playing. Yeah. Got an insight into your... Jimmy screaming at the kids this morning. <laughs> <laughs> an insight into your musical taste and... Uh, parenting skills and uh all the rest of it so Thanks. it's kind of been a, been a bit of fun yeah totally. uh, cute kids by the way yeah good boys wonderful good job thank you yeah um it's kind of a quite a surreal full circle moment in a way partly with that it got me thinking about the first time i met you and some of the moments where i've seen you or been in your restaurants over the 30 years since i met you and uh yeah, I hadn't realised the cultural impact that you'd had across many different areas, not just restaurants, and also, you know, on me and my wife personally. So it's kind of quite amazing. Mm. As you know, I'm married to Kate Soprano, who's another Melbourne institution like yourself. 
And uh, I lived one block from where we are now when Kate and I met 30 years ago. I remember that. <laughs> and then she lived in Melbourne at that time. And the first time I went to Melbourne to, you know, spend a weekend with her when we were dating, what was the first restaurant she took me to for our first dinner in Melbourne? It was Cafe Ecochina, your first restaurant. So that was a significant moment and it was it was an incredible moment. It was like the very best of Melbourne. It was like, you know, walking into, for me, coming from Sydney, a, you know, a European experience and, uh, and it was pretty magic. Mm. And then over the years, Kate's Hens Party, prior to getting a couple of days before we got married in Victoria, Cafe Ecochina. Anyway, the list goes on. Here we are 30 years later and you offered a lifeline, in fact, to Kate to do a residency or a you know summer of shows at your iconic restaurant. And um, when do we wrap that up, Lee? <laughs> I think we've got three shows we've got left. Three shows left. I think we're six in, and we've yeah. got we've got three left. So, obviously, you know. But every Thursday night over summer, it's been summer with Kate at Bondi Iceberg's dining room, and here we are, living downstairs from you. So, thank you for that lifeline. Great. It was fantastic for us as well. You know, dinner and shows are a big part of our um, big part of our experience, really. Yeah. I think that um, during that COVID period, we realised how important the dinner and shows factor was. Yeah. And that you know everyone wanted a little bit of entertainment, so there was a you know perfect synergy. Yeah, it's good. No, it's been been beautiful, mate. Thank you. Thank you. So, and you know, here we are living here, one block from where we first met, and um, what a trip. Mm. So. I got a bunch of questions for you, but I guess shoot it off, Lee. Okay, thinking. I know it's a long intro. I'm talking about my experience, but I just thought no, I. That's good. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> okay, no. I worries. actually do. I do remember when you were up here with Kate, or when you and Kate, because you lived there. Like, not. I'm not quite sure if that was the same house you're talking about, but you lived around the corner. Yes, that's right. You got it. And it's kind of interesting because I mean, you and Kate were, you know, back in the '80s rascals around melbourne very much you know that sort of post-punk melbourne music fashion art scene and uh, your restaurant was flying i guess earlier than that you were waiting in mario's and black cat other places where kate had worked and performed so mixed in the same circles and really running the door at Batchbox. oh right from prague yeah yeah wow yeah so yeah there's a lot of lot of shared history there with my wife I know for her, like actually having brought her up here for these gigs recently, it was a struggle getting Kate out of Melbourne because she is such a passionate Melbournean and is a you know an institution down there. How did you make that transition and did you feel guilty about leaving your, your, your parents and Melbourne? No, not really. I think I was going through a little bit of a um, some personal things that I was sorting out in my life at that time. Um, I left Cafe Cucino Buckaro and I'd gone to the Melbourne Wine Room just as a series of personal things that, you know, personal events that had happened. And I took a couple of years off and I literally, you know, from about 87 to about 90, 95, 96, I pretty much, you know, hadn't gone out or done anything. I just worked. And then so during that time, just um, then I opened the Melbourne Wine Room and I was there for about two years and then just a series of events, I decided to take a bit of time off and literally decided to just go out and sort of paint the town red, as they say, you know, and took a couple of years of literally just enjoying Melbourne. Yep. Enjoying its, you know, disco scene, its post-punk scene, its bar scene, its nightclubbing scene. 
and you know I'd been involved in a few nightclubs anyhow during that time so it was like you know it wasn't a foreign world to me so it was somewhere where I felt really comfortable and I spent a couple of years being very social and during that time I sort of started to really work out where was I going to go from there because I think both the three major restaurants Cafe Gacina firstly then in Buckaroo which sort of like you know broke a lot of rules as well you know winning restaurant of the year as a wine bar um, and sort of the first of its kind, really, to then the Melbourne Wine Room with, you know, the late Don Levy Fitzpatrick. Um, you know, I think that the Melbourne Wine Room, you know, changed pub culture forever. Absolutely. You know? And downstairs, you know, the famous Snake Pit, which was sort of the first of the cross between a disco and a bar. So, like, that's pretty much, again, in its own way, started the whole movement. Yep. You know? um, which were very important to sort of developing a late-night culture. And um, so I was very confused what I was going to do after that. You know, there wasn't many places to really go. Right. And I was approached by Lang Walker, actually, who I'm working with at the moment, one of Australia's, you know, great developers. And he was putting um, Will and Lou together. And he approached me on coming up and, and opening a gig up here. And um, so getting out of Melbourne, I suppose, was actually quite... Was, it was good timing for you. Yeah, it was good timing. You know, okay. I sort of done my gigs. Yeah. I'd done my apprenticeship. Yeah, did my sort of 12 years or whatever of, you know, just working. As my father would say, work now for the future. You know, real migrant approach to everything. Yeah. And then I was sort of ready for the next chapter in my life. And I think that, um, you know, coming up to Sydney was probably just really good timing. And I came up and I sort of felt that Sydney and Melbourne were very different at the time. Sydney was much more advanced than I felt at the time in terms of fine dining restaurants. You know, we had Belmondo, the Rockpool, Paramount. There's some incredible chefs, you know, David Thompson, Daly Street Thai, you know. So we had all these really incredible talent and Sydney tended to have, you know, the more expensive of the restaurants. But it reminded me a little bit of what Melbourne was probably five, six years prior, where, you know, you would have very good and then very bad. Yeah. And nothing in between. And I think that Melbourne grew with restaurants like Cafe Cucino, Bucco and the Melbourne Wine Room that played a significant role in that movement. Yeah. In really opening up quality, you know, middle market quality. Yeah. So, you know, you didn't have to go to a, a three-hat restaurant to be served by someone in a uniform, you know, in a waiter's outfit or get quality. And I felt that that middle market that I do very well, let's call it a bistro market, uh -huh. I sort of just felt was perfect timing. And right. as a result, I was right. And, you know, Otto Ristorante Otto, we opened up and I think the first day we did like 400 covers and... It was just, you know, it just was absolutely out of control. I think it was the busiest restaurant in Sydney for the first three years that I was running it. So It was a phenomenon. It was a phenomenon. And I think it just came in at the right time. And, you know, it just all felt really good to me. Yes, there was a lot of guilt there leaving my parents, but it was just one of those things that you just have to do in life, really. And I discovered the beach. Yeah. And I think that that really put a really beautiful balance in my life. Yeah, nice. And I think that, you know, shifting from just being purely a nightlife person yep. to sort of enjoying daytime as well. Yeah. Much yeah. more than what I would have in Melbourne. Yep. was a really good balance, you know, and it's like being sort of like fundamental in, in maintaining in, and allowing me to enjoy the industry because I do find that I have that balance. Yeah, cool, mate. Yeah, I mean, clearly you creatively driven I'd say, you know, relentlessly creative in pretty well all your endeavours. So, yeah, I can imagine that was a kind of healthier balance for you. So, good move on that. Yep. You've made it work. Let's go back a bit to the start. Obviously, your folks were hugely influential on you and you being second generation of Italian immigrants. 
How old were you? No, well, I, I actually, I was born here. My parents migrated during the early 50s, mid 50s. Okay, yep. They both came from towns very close to each other, but met here. And my father was from a very, you know, very, very, very poor working class, you know, socialist family. Whereas my mother came from a much more, not necessarily affluent, but, you know, much more middle class family. You know, her father was on the other side of the fence and joined the Mussolini Brigade. Right. So they were like, you know, very different, but came from a very similar region. And they met and got married here. And my sister, myself and my brother, we were all born here. Yeah. Right. But then our parents took us back. But they really struggled to assimilate right. for a long time, both my parents. Yep. And um, they were very successful here. What did your dad do? Actually, at the beginning, they were hairdressers. Right. My mother was a hairdresser, so my father followed, because my mother was educated, whereas my father, being uneducated, followed my mother into hairdressing. And they had a number of salons during the 60s that were like just religious salons in Melbourne, and they just made a lot of money. Right. But they really struggled. They struggled to assimilate, and they decided to take us back in 74. And it was a bit of a roller coaster since till about 86. I think in 81 we came back and then we went back in 83 and then we went back. He sort of like was this whole roller coaster ride. Yeah. And my father got into restaurants and bars and sort of cafes during that return to Italy, you know, from about 75 onwards. Right. Yeah. And so tell me, you at that age in Italy, obviously there was some exciting times and you soaked up the culture and the cafes and yeah, all the rest of it. A, Italy was a very interesting time, you know, yeah. the 70s. You know, all of the 70s, late 60s and all of the 70s were like architecturally very interested in Italy, you know, had movements like Super Studio. And then you had the political movements, you had the drug revolution, you had, you know, the anti-church revolution, you know, and, you know, the rise of socialism. And it was like a quite a radical time. There was the Red Brigades, like it was just everything was jam-packed into that decade, you know. Yeah. And in a way, I was very fortunate to live that because I was very much part of that cultural revolution, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, it was the birth of Italo Disco, Solo Disco. It was like, you know, the Italians were doing clubs better than the Americans and, you know. So, yeah, so it was a really interesting time. And then with that obviously came, you know, the other side, you know, which was the um, food and beverage, yep. food and wine culture that we were exposed to on a daily basis, you know. And I think yep. that that was probably the start of when I really realised that, you know, that's probably what I wanted to get into. Yeah. You know? And so when you came back, did you go back to school? And what? when yeah, did you yeah. leave school? I, How I old were you when you left? And um, I went back, finished my high school. Right. During the high school, I worked both, you know, I worked in supermarkets, bottle shops, wherever I could. So it was always some type of like hospitality, the all food job. And then um, again, I really struggled when I got back. You know, I really struggled to sort of like, again, you know, not necessarily be accepted, but it was very different to where you know, to where I'd been living for the last six years. You know, I ended up out in McKinnon and Moorabbin, like true working-class Australian suburbs, you know. They were just difficult times. And yeah. I think that what got me through everything was that I was very good at sports and I was always quite active. So I got into, like, just playing soccer and, and playing sports and that sort of got me through that whole period, you right. know. Yeah. Right. Fantastic. And when did you start waiting and, you know, working the black cat and those kind of things? Well, I finished high school. And as I got a car, I sort of got out of Moorabbin and started hanging out more in sort of, you know, Fitzroy and St Kilda and so on. And then it was just, um, I remember going back to Italy, I think it was in 83, 84. 
And I lived, I did about a year and a half in Milan. I lived with my sister in Milan. My sister was designing for Missoni at the time, she was the head designer at Missoni. So I was very fortunate. I sort of went back to Italy and, you know, after years of not being there, my parents had already gone back. And during that time, you know, just to earn a little bit of an income, I started working as a waiter in various bars and, you know, catering companies and so on. And came back to Australia and sort of realized, you know, that's pretty much what I wanted to do. And I felt very comfortable with that. Yeah. And I think um, Henry Mars offered me a job in 84 and that's when I sort of pretty much started waitering, yeah. Right, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, often it's a, not a highly respected job and it's, you know, backpackers, out-of-work actresses, all the rest of it. So it's often not given a lot of prestige, but clearly you've kind of gone in and taken it, you know, you took it on as a professional and uh, take full responsibility for that restaurant and the experience that's delivered to the customer when you're there. And, you know, it's a huge part of well, I think your that, success that, that as a restaurant. That, that period in Melbourne, there was a whole generation of like people like the Marios and the Black Cat that really reinvigorated what cafe society or what service was all about yeah. and what the experience in restaurants was all about. Yeah. And also those great restaurants that we had, you know, the fine dining restaurants always really inspired us. So well, I think that what happened in Italy, I, I learned that what the Italians did really well, the Italians do fast food really well, you know, and I think what I learned in Italy was that quality was available to everyone. And when I came back to Australia and, and started working as a waiter, I could really see the gap. Yeah. There was a massive gap in the market. So, you know, yeah. in Italy, my father would pull up on the free, you know, on the autostrada and be filling his car with filling the tank up and, you know, we'd be having like prosciutto di parma and parmigiano rolls, you know. Yeah, nice. In the middle of who knows where. Yeah. And I think I realised that time in Australia, in Melbourne in particular, was really just all about the inner city. You know, you really couldn't yeah. get quality really outside of the inner city. Yeah. And I think that, you know, and again, quality at that time was very much driven by high-end restaurants and then, you know, the sort of lower-end restaurants were really not, not producing. It wasn't really great quality, put it that way, you know? No, no, got it. And I think that, like, that was both in terms of service and in terms of product, and I think that the Mario's opened up the way and Henry had sort of done that at the Black Cat and yeah. a few other cafes here and there and... yeah. Sort of like I suppose I followed, you know. Yeah. yeah. And so Cafe Acacina was your first restaurant. You, yep. you were 23, I believe. 20, just turned 23. 23. And how did you get the money together? I mean, it was visionary where you placed it in on Chapel Street. That was sort of before the, the area went off. Well, yeah, I looked for about two years. So when I got back from Italy, I was just 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 turned 21, and that's when I started working with the Marios and, and the Black Cat and so on. I worked at a couple other Italian restaurants. Vic Ave and Danini's and things like that. And um, I started looking for about two years and I looked for everywhere. Literally, I looked, must have looked at 190, 200 sites, I remember. And I you know, looked everywhere from North Melbourne to Fitzroy to Brunswick to Croydon to Oakley. You know, I looked all over Melbourne. Um, and a very good friend of mine, Fiona Scanlon, like was part of that sort of, you know, Kate scene, yep. you know? She had opened up her first store on Chapel Street and I was working at Mario's at the time and she just told me about it. So I went to have a look at the store and as I was walking around the area, there was a restaurant that just closed down with spaghetti on the run and we made an application and we sort of, we got the gig, you know, had no money, had a thousand dollars each, my partner and I, Maria. Wow. So, you know, borrowed some money from the bank and opened up the restaurant with $13,000. 
and worked 17 hours a day for the yeah, next six much. years, yeah, seven days a much. week. You know, that's what we started. We started like, you know, we started as, you know, just a group of like, you know, young kids that just wanted to like listen to jazz and smoke a lot of dope, really. And as the years progressed, professionalism started to kick in and we sort of wanted to get better and better. And right. so we'd just push ourselves more and we'd be learning more and be learning more about business and more about the industry. Right. And it just sort of took its toll and we just grew from there, really. It wasn't something that was really calculated. A lot of people asked me that. It was really just a work in progress. Yeah. You know? And I think that that's why it was so successful, because it was quite authentic. I think that the growth was quite authentic. You know, we didn't go in there trying to, you know, claim that we knew it all. Yeah. So all we really wanted to do was just, you know, listen to Coltrane and serve cappuccinos and cook some food and serve some people. So that's how it really started. It started with no budget. It started with no forecast. We just knew that it was a really good idea and sort of we had a really good gut feeling that it was just going to work, you know. And I think that sometimes I look back at the gigs that I opened, the most successful gigs that I've opened are the ones that have had pretty much no budget or forecast and they've just been opened with, you know, just with a gut feeling. And, you know, I don't know if I should be saying that for the next generation, but, you know, that's, that's how it was almost back then. If the idea was powerful, you just went with it. Yeah. I think there was less to risk as well, at, you know, in those days. Like, again, you know, you know we opened up a restaurant with $13,000, but we did build it ourselves. Yeah. Sort of started working with some young designers, people like Chris Connell that had only done one or two gigs at the time. So there was, you know, there was a whole community of us, a network of friends that I had that sort of embraced it and helped me in some way or another, whether it be through graphics or, you know, through design or through construction. Yeah. And yeah. so on. So, you know, that's how pretty much it started. Yeah. It's a great story, mate. Yeah. I was chatting it's to Kate. It's a very simple story. Yeah. You know? No, it's beautiful. So I was asking Kate about it um, a couple of days ago and she said that one of the magical things about Cafe Ecochina was, she was a superstar at the time, but she might be on her own, want a quick lunch. She'd often just turn up and because it was so small, I think there was only, how many tables? We had, we had 20, 25 chairs downstairs. We had yeah. about 15 outside and that was for the first three years. And then we renovated and did the upstairs that yeah. was about another 25 right. chairs. So we ended up with about 60 chairs all right, up. Right, Yeah, well, she said she'd often turn up even if she was just on her own and it was usually packed and you'd put her on another table with someone else. But it was that you were so good at that of teaming up people and creating conversations and people sitting close to each other and it'd create these unexpected yeah. magic yeah. moments. Yeah, Cafe Cachita was a very interesting because it was owned as much by the clients as it was owned by me. And I think the people really embraced it. So there's that sense of community and it actually really worked. It's what, that's what drove it. And what had happened is there was a lot of clients that, that would frequent Cafe Cachita that were really sort of like similar age to myself, that were all starting their careers, in, whether it be music, art, fashion. Yeah. And we just all grew together. And some of them went off, you know, and Kate was already there, but went off and did, you know, bigger and better things. And then there was a lot of magazine people that now are editors and a lot of artists or fashion designers that have now gone off to be very, very successful. And it was that whole melting pot of post-punk Melbourne, really. And I think the Cafe Cucina really came to the pinnacle of it all, you know. Yeah. No, it's very cool. I mean, particularly we're in this COVID era right now with the social distancing and the separation and exactly what it says, social distancing. It's like the, the opposite to what you want to create as a restaurant experience, isn't it? I know. We're, we're shoulder to shoulder, you know, definitely shoulder to shoulder. I'm not quite sure if you're familiar with Harry's Bar in Venice, but, you know, 
Arrigo Cipriani is a great inspiration for us and for myself in particular. And pretty much we've read everything he's written, but um, in one of his books, in one of his chapters, he, he talks about restaurants are for flirting and people need to be able to sort of, you know, almost touch each other or overhear each other's conversations. And I think that that's a really beautiful thing. So we always talk about the social role that restaurants have. And I think that that's a message that we've been really shouting out to the public and to the world since this whole COVID thing had happened. You know, people can eat at home, but the social role that restaurants have is incredibly important. Absolutely. It's one of the things that, you know, occurred to me as I was reading up on you and the various restaurants going, my God, I've actually never really duplicated the cultural role that restaurants play. And um, yeah, I used to think of, you know, music and these other things and kind of in a way take restaurants for granted because that's something we have to do to survive to eat. Mm -hmm. But I was kind of looking at it and going, wow, that's just the, the amount of magic moments and, you know, big life moment experiences that you've delivered in your restaurants for tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people through your career. I'm like, wow, it's a significant cultural impact. Yeah, no, very important. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really fascinating to me. Yeah, Something else that's interesting, and I noticed from, you know, back at those days in Hecachina, like I knew you were there. It was like you were, you were invisible at the same time. You were running the thing and you were sort of matchmaking and you were putting it all together with your creative vision. But at the same time, you weren't the star of the show. You were kind of invisible, which is yeah, kind no, of interesting. Yeah. Is that by plan or? Oh, I think that just, you know, just something that we were taught. My father ran a number of cafes and restaurants, as I said, during the 70s as well. And some of them were quite successful. And, um, you know, they would always say that a waiter's role is to be invisible, really. Wow. You know, you know? and, you know, we're there, but we're not there. We're there to service, but not, you know, not to be the star of the show, very much what you're saying now. And it just becomes about the restaurant. The restaurant is bigger than all of us. Yeah, right. You know? Well, I mean, as the maitre d' traditionally, that that is often a flamboyant character and they can be a kind of a bit of a star. But I noticed, obviously, that the legend has grown, but you still maintain that. Yeah, no, we, day, had, we, we had a very different approach, I suppose, also coming from that cultural background, you know, the 70s and then, you know, living that sort of post-punk period in Melbourne. I think they were a lot more humble, you know, and we didn't need to necessarily be the big stars of the shows. And, you know, we were literally there doing the hard yards, you know, so there yeah. wasn't the time to sort of shine. Yeah. Tell me, so in how many people, how many meals a day were you doing through Cafe Cucina at the time? Cucina at one stage was peaking at about 1,300 people a day. So, you know, when it was really at its absolute peak, well, we're voted top 10 cafes of the world by New York Times. And um, there was a period there. Um, so we, the first two years we were unlicensed. So we basically went in and we just listening to jazz and just serving a mixture of things that we understood, you know. And then we changed chef. My first partner, Maria, left in 1990 and I, a new chef came in, Andrea, he was from up near Vincenza. And he'd been working at the famous Rosati for, you know, Piero and Ronnie and so on and so on and a few other restaurants. He was very, very skillful. Came from a very, very, very smart, you know, restaurateurian family. Um, and his background actually was in patisserie and he'd work in Mission Stars and so on. And so he came on board and at that time there we became licensed. I think we were one of the first small restaurants to become licensed. And everything changed then, you know, with the introduction of the license, with the introduction of Andrea, that's when Cucina really became from just being, 
you know, the neighborhood cafe yep. to really be in the institution that it is today, you know. And it was about that period from about 1990 to about 94 or 95, I think just before I left it, you know, left the group. Yep. Um, although I did keep some shares in the business for quite some time. Yeah. During that period, there was a group of six, seven, eight, nine waiters yeah. that pretty much worked together every day for seven, you know, seven days a week for all that time. You know, some of my waiters were going home with three, four thousand dollars a week, you know, between tips and, and salary. They were the great days of tips and salary, you know. And um, yeah, we just, we were just, you know, we were just on fire. We'd open up at 7 a.m. in the morning till 12 at night. We never had an empty seat. And it was all day dining as well. So kitchen never closed. Wow. So again, it's sort of like, you know, there was very few places at that time. I think it was Pellegrini's, Tiamo's, maybe, um, you know, a few yeah. other bits and pieces here and there. Obviously the Mario's, you know, that really introduced that all day dining. Yeah. And yeah. I think that, you know, that's, that's what we created and you know it just sort of just flowed yeah know? beautiful and um, your dad worked with you there for yeah, dad, a, a lot dad of that was, time dad was our maitre d' for the good 10 years there yeah so he was instrumental in you know in sort of pulling everything together he always had lots of you know wise words for us and i think that that just showed a little bit of also solidarity between you know the, the generations you know, yeah, totally. And um, it showed some, again, some authenticity. Or it yep. felt authentic. It felt like a family restaurant. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, but then it also came across as an international sort of, you know. It did. Yeah. What were some of the words of wisdom your dad imparted? Um, I think the most important thing that he's taught us is that, um, you know, a waiter's role is just to um, make sure that clients feel like they've made the right choice to spend their money with us. You know, so I think that that was a thing that we'd, that's always, you know, remained very much with us yeah yeah it's interesting as you've grown clearly you you know that's deeply ingrained in you because even watching you down at the icebergs you'll wander in and you just like you're adjusting napkins you're making sure they're perfectly symmetrical you're sort of eyeballing every detail you're absolutely committed to ensuring every customer gets what is promised yeah pretty much i think that that's really important you know, and I think that during COVID and now almost post-COVID, that's become even more important and sort of trying to teach all the crew that it can go as easily as, as it's come. So to be respectful of that and to be, you know, to appreciate that we do have a, an incredible clientele base mm. and it is something that hasn't happened overnight. So, you know, that respect is really important. And then, you know, I want everyone to have the great, great experience, but I'm also obsessed by, you know, by perfection. So. It sort of like it's taken over my life at times, but you know, yeah. We, we don't have time to go through every restaurant because there's so many of them, it's kind of mind blowing, but I want to touch on a couple of the other yeah. iconic seminal restaurants you've been a part of. Just briefly give us an overview of the Melbourne Wine Room, how that came to be and, and what was your creative brief to the chef, for the menu, for the wine, like why was so, that the phenomena um, it was? Uh, well, Don Levy, you know, obviously we were working at Cucina. There was really, you know, a handful of what we felt like inspiring restaurateurs or restaurants, you know, and in St Kilda you had Ronnie, the Melbourne Wine Room, which was the George at the time, with Jeremy Strode, you know, incredible yeah. chef. You had the Van Handels and the Print and the Stokehouse. And then you had Don also had um, Dog's Bar and so was on. Was Distasio around then? Distasio opened a year before Cucina. Right. So it was that sort of community and, you know, Don, 
Don had started the Dogs Bar and in Spuntino and then developed the George was, you know, and really was really the first that lobbied with state government to change licensing laws and introduce small bar laws. So he was he was a bit of an idol in RI and um, we got along incredibly well and Don was, you know, a really good client of the Cucina and would come in all the time and, you know, he approached me one day to, um, you know, redevelop the George and it was a massive decision for me to leave Cucina. I don't think my father's ever really got over it. Like emotionally, I think that that really tortured him for quite some time. Yeah. And I just opened up at Buckaroo and we you know, just one restaurant of the year and so on. And I sort of knew that if I didn't leave at that particular time, I would sort of pretty much be tied to that group for probably the next decade. I just sort of felt this need to go off and, and work with other people and, you know, do other things that were not necessarily just 100% Italian because yeah. those restaurants, you know, were really focused on, you know, being totally Italian, which yeah. is a bit different to what I'm doing these days. Yep. Um, and so we went in there and so like our idea was to, you know, to have this room that really represented the four greater regions of Melbourne, you know, greater wine regions of Melbourne. And we wanted a room where that if you came from overseas and you wanted to pretty much visit every vineyard, it was a, like a one-stop shop. So we pretty much represented most, I think 80%, 85% of all vineyards in, in that, that greater region. And, um, you know, Dom at that time was, you know, again, ahead of, the, ahead of everyone and, you know, he was producing early release Beaujolais and, you know, unwanted Chardonnays and he was producing Pinots with like Crown Seal and, you know, so on and so on. And um, he also was involved in Clyde Park. So that whole wine story sort of happened through him and I was sort of really starting to get into wine at that time and I was, you know, starting to get into Pinot Noir at that time and Don was obviously, you know, the godfather of Pinot Noir. So there was this sort of match and... Um, in terms of the food, we both really enjoyed eating Karen Martini's food. I think she was working at the Kent in Carlton, it was. And so we approached her and, you know, we interviewed her and she basically cooked 13 dishes for us at the interview and um, came on board. And the brief to her was, um, Don and I sort of formulated this brief, but the brief to her was like, you know, flavours my parents would recognise, but food they would never cook. So we wanted an Italian touch. So there was a DNA strand but we wanted it to be more than just an Italian restaurant. And, you know, that's how it sort of came about. And I think Karen just blossomed from there. And the wine room was just, you know, again, a bit like Cucina. There wasn't really a documented strategy. It was just, just a feeling, you know, the room, obviously, the George being very important. The George is also very important to me culturally because it's where I grew up as a post-punk. It's where the Melbourne punk scene started their careers, you know, the famous Crystal Ballroom and Seaview Ballroom. So there was a cultural connection for me that was incredible. And St Kilda at that stage there in 96, it was still really quiet. It was, oh, let's just call it a little bit on edge still. You know? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, there was a massive music scene. There was a massive film scene. And, you know, there was a massive art scene and so on. And so, you know, we all used to hang out there. So it sort of just all made sense to me. And then um, we, we opened up the Melbourne Wine Room at the George and there was the gallery attached to it, of, you know, and, and the club downstairs. And it was just, just a perfect timing, really. Yeah. It was just out of control again. Yeah. Yeah. Probably 10 times what Cucina was. But it allowed me also go into the world of pubs, which was quite interesting, and then start to learn about that and then start to really get into the service of alcohol. Yeah. and the service of alcohol and food. And it gave me a lot more freedom to start to work with music and, you know, other channels. 
Yeah. I mean, it seems like really we've only just touched the tip of the iceberg of the different restaurants and the artistic, creative activities you've been a part of. feels like hotels and festivals are about the only thing left you haven't done. Is no, that I've something? Your, I've been involved in festivals. Oh, <laughs> I know you've done, done like, festivals. you know, parties and all the rest of it, but you've been no, involved so in festivals. Yeah, we did festival. We did a small festival for Vivid called Ditello Dining and Disco Club. Oh, wow. So it just it was a it was a small festival it was with Vivid and Grace Jones and it ran over a period of um, five days at Carriage Works. So you know, sort of like it was classified as a festival, it was a food festival, part of a food oh, festival. Cool. Um, I did that with um, a couple of friends of mine from Number Ten William Street. Right. And that particular gig sort of has travelled around Australia at different festivals. So it's been involved in the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. It's, you know, we did a gig up at Splendour with it. Right. Oh, okay, so, great. I didn't so, know about so, that. So like, there was a sort of like a bit of a travelling show, you know. Okay, cool. What about um, hotels, mate? I, I want to stay in the Morris Tuzine yeah, no, Hotel. Well, like, is it coming? I, 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 think that, um, <laughs> I think that my calling in life is hotels. Oh, is that right? Yeah, so I've been on a hotel in St Kilda that we won. It was part of the St Kilda Triangle, and then that never went ahead. Um, it was going to be the first of the Hotel Tazzini. I think that was 97, 98, maybe, maybe even a bit later. And I suppose that restaurants for me are really, I've realised they're really just a means to an end. You know, they're, um, they're really leading me into accommodation and really, you know, having my own hotel where I can where I can be involved in everything from restaurants to bars to galleries to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. Yeah, well, feels like a good fit. And, and I also believe that, you know, my products uh, over the last 30 years have really sold more than just F&B, you know, and as we're saying, they've really, they really sell a lifestyle. So, you know, we're not just about food and wine, food and drinks. Even the icebergs itself, I suppose, is really a lifestyle-driven restaurant, you know. Absolutely. Mm. Mate, that, that's exciting. Okay. Yeah. Um, tell me, we did touch on icebergs earlier, but tell me about that. I mean, it's a massive, massive thing to tackle. I imagine <laughs> the build itself must have cost millions. Um, it was the first restaurant that I was involved that was actually like a multi-million dollar fit out. Right. And I think that the icebergs came about, I was just approached by the board at the time. Right. And by John Singleton, that was a good client. And um, it was like, you know, it was just like a bit of a dream come true, really, because I'd always wanted to create a real international restaurant. And I always wanted to create a restaurant that, that was like iconically Australian. You know, and I thought that all my work up until the icebergs was really trying to like indulge in like, you know, my past and, you know, my history in Italy. And I thought that with the icebergs, it was sort of like that time to move on and to really put some of that behind me and really accept where I am and what right. I was doing in this industry and so on. And I suppose from that point there, I sort of started carrying the flag of more of being an Italo-Australian restaurateur rather than trying to be an, an Italian restaurateur in Australia. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And I sort of felt that, you know, my product really started to reflect more about, you know, who we are as, as a second generation or as an Italian generation in Australia rather than, you know, trying to carry that Italian flag and just be 100% authentically Italian, you yeah. know? Yeah. I think and that was, a big totally that, was a, that was a big stepping stone for me. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Mate, very gutsy. Did you put all of your money into it no, at that well, time or well, did you have a lot was, of partners? It was quite an interesting sort of like, I had quite a few partners at Otto. I had a little consortium of like quite successful business people that were involved. They all moved across. And so the money was there or the money was ready to be raised. And so we sort of just got into it because the building had to be finished. And it was a bit of a time schedule. We started construction. 
just as we were about to start construction and we engaged the builder, most of them decided to pull out because they felt that, you know, the Bondi was not really the place to be and that no one would really want to come and dine at Bondi and there was no car parking and so on. So I sort of ended up... Um, wow. I ended up starting construction and having to, you know, pull the pin on it for about a year and a half until I managed to raise the rest of the money. Holy but I had to sell off Otto at that stage as well and that's another story altogether, you know. Wow. I was sort of quite fortunate that a couple of shareholders at the time decided to buy it off me and I put that money into the icebergs, yeah. Wow. And then, as they say, the rest is history. The thing's been an incredible success and yeah. is, what is it, top top 10 restaurant in the world year no, after year or something, no, isn't it's it? A, I think that it gets recognised as an international restaurant. I think right. that we're the best of our category. You know, we, we, we never aim to be... I suppose with the icebergs... By that stage there, I sort of like my experience had grown and we sort of came into the world of spending millions of dollars on fit outs. So, you know, there were budgets involved and there was documentation of what we wanted to do and, you know, where we wanted to go and what we wanted to achieve with AFMB. And I think that, you know, through my experience, we sort of decided that we wanted the icebergs to be the best of its category. We never wanted it to be the best restaurant in Australia, you know, the best restaurant in the world. Right. I think it peaked at number 75 in the world right. in one year, but it consistently gets voted in the top, you know, 50 most important, you know, bucket list sort of restaurants around the world. It's, you know, been a two-hat restaurant now for 18 years. Very, very consistent in yeah. its ratings, both nationally and internationally. Absolutely. Um, you know, but it's one of those restaurants that does high volume. So I think to achieve what we're achieving with the volume that we're doing, it's quite phenomenal. And, you know, it's 18 years later, and I think that now it's really found its feet. And I think COVID was really an interesting time for us to really review the model moving forward. And it actually allowed us to sort of like take a deep breath and really work out what are we going to do with the next 20 years of the icebergs. I sort of see myself really just being a custodian of it. It's not really my restaurant. It belongs to the public. It's crown land, you know. So I suppose that during this period, I've been really reflecting on what am I going to hand over to the next person that becomes the custodian of the icebergs. And I suppose that my mission is to hand over something that's really solid and that has really good integrity and it's been there, you know, successful for a certain period of time. I don't want to hand over a restaurant that's gone broke or, you know, yeah. is producing every average product, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you, on, with that kind of volume and even I imagine the turnover of staff because it's a big staff, how do you manage to keep up the high standards, your high standards of yeah. staff and the high standards of food with that kind of volume? Well, I think that, like, I've just got better at it. I suppose at my age as well, I'm no longer at that point where I want to necessarily, you know, be involved in the everyday on the ground operations. But I've managed to, you know, really put together good structures through help from other partners and, you know, people that have come through my ranks. Right. So, you know, I'm good at putting teams together now. Yeah. You know, gotcha. And I suppose I'm really good at articulating what I want. Yeah, creatively, you're very good at giving a, a succinct yeah. brief. And I'm very good at making sure that the parameters that they stick with in their parameters. Yeah. I suppose really that's my role now. You know, I set the parameters and I just yeah. make sure that my crew stay within those parameters. Yeah. Because, you know, through that, through that period, I've gone off and done other things that have been fortunate enough to get involved in that have been, you know, things that I've wanted to do from fashion to music and so on. So, you know. On the food of the icebergs, 
I've been there every week for the summer residency and the food is incredible. Yeah, week idea, after week. Yeah. Tell me, like, the menu. How, how involved are you with so, the menu? Well, like, you know, obviously right when, when I started with Karen, I was working on, I was on the floor and I was, you know, basically restaurant manager, general manager, managing director, right. all in one. So I participated in the room and I think that um, one of the reasons that the icebergs has found its identity is that I did participate on the floor probably up until three, four years ago, you know, maybe a bit longer, five years ago. So it clearly has my DNA all over it. So I've worked with a number of different chefs at the Icebergs. Again, I feel that whoever's running the kitchen is just part of the history of the Icebergs. Even during my time at the Icebergs, there'll just be lots of different custodians in the kitchen as well. That's as I refer back to them. Yeah. So obviously there's been Karen, there's been Robert Marchetti, that was Bill Marchetti's, you know, famed brother from the Latin. So we worked together for a long time. We did a number of other gigs together. One of them that we haven't spoken about, which is probably one of the most important, one of the most important gigs that I did here in Bondi, which was North Bondi Italian food. That again was a bit like the Melbourne Wine Room. That was a melting pot of let's call it, you know, the Sydney electronic dance scene and that whole North Bondi, Bondi surf sort of punk scene. Yep. And that was, that was about 10 years ago and that was probably as a cultural gig, both in terms of like lifestyle and then in terms of food and beverage. It's another that, phenomenon. That was absolutely, I have to put it almost at my number one. You know, it was just perfectly Sydney on the beach because I was working with Subi at the time, doing a few collections for them. So then there was the fashion, you know, the sort of surf punk fashion. And then there was Modular Records, you know, with Pav. And, you know, there was all those sort of electronic bands. And so it was just all this sort of all came together through there. So that was quite important. But um, the Icebergs, we've had a number of different chefs. But again, I've sort of maintained that brief that I developed with Doran back at the Melbourne Wine Room. And it really sort of made more sense at the icebergs where it's become, you know, flavours my parents would recognise but food they wouldn't cook. And you give each chef that brief and everyone interprets it in a different way, you know. Obviously the Italian comes through the flavours. You know, different chefs have adopted it in different ways, you know. So Monty came in with a real French background and I suppose that, you know, he really developed his Italian-Australian, you know, like touch, which he's famous for now through the icebergs. And Alex was his head chef. Yep. But Alex is just, you know, one of those young 26-year-olds that's just probably got the most knowledge to know of all the people that I know and it's just someone that's thirsty for knowledge. So, you know, these days I allow them a lot more freedom than what I did in, right. in the past. Um, and I just work with them on making sure that the parameters within the menu are icebergs. Yeah, gotcha. So when I get there, I know straight away whether it's an icebergs menu or not. Yeah, you know? gotcha. But I allow them a lot more freedom these days. Right. You know, so I am involved with them on a um, tasting basis. So we try to taste everything together, but I really allow them to go off and just develop their own. Gotcha. You know, their own, their own menus. I suppose that that's something that I want to be part of, but it's not the only things that I'm doing these days. Gotcha. So, yeah. Gotcha. No, that's cool. Do you cook at all, like when you're at home? Yeah, no, I do cook. I like, you know, I'm a bit like my mother, really. You know, we cook 10, 15 dishes well. And, you know, I remember I started as a line cook and I realised that I'd always be a line cook, you know, rather than a creative cook. So, you know, that's when I moved front of house. But I suppose coming from that Italian background, it's been very fortunate that, um, you know, if I think that I've got a really good palate, because I've been front of house for the last 30 years, I've pretty much eaten most of my meals in the restaurant. You know? Yeah, right. And, you know, I look, think about that all the time and I sort of like, 
there's another person that's very similar who's running Distasia. We talk about it all the time, you know? And the joy of eating in a restaurant for us is just phenomenal. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Um, you've had, I mean, let's just name off a few of the other restaurants, particularly Chickabella, which is in Bondi and recently yeah, so opened in Parramatta. They're also sensational. Yeah, they're just How fun. have they they're been just, going for you? They've been going great. They're a sort of bit more of a commercial journey for me. I did a place out in Chadston for the Gandals. And again, that was based on like, why can't good quality be provided out in, in shopping centres? And I suppose that Chichabella is a, um, I just want to open up a series of them. There's about 10 of them in the pipeline and they're all different concepts. But you know, they're just supposed to be your friendly neighbourhood every day. Take the kids, go on your own, you know, go as a couple, go with some friends. Everyday easy eating. Yeah. That's, that's just dedicated to quality, but not trying to change the world. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, what about the dolphin? Well, I've pulled out of the dolphin oh, as, okay. as, as of COVID. Okay, right. We had to make some sort of pretty harsh decisions, you know. A lot of money was tied up at the icebergs and our cash flow had stopped and, you know, there was an opportunity to sell some shares there. So I put my, my shares on the market and, you know, my other partners bought me out, which was great. But no, the dolphin was probably, again, like the Melbourne Wine Room, probably one of the most important pubs that have opened up in Sydney in the last decade. Yeah, it definitely changed the, the landscape, landscape in yeah. Sydney, didn't it? Yeah. I think that the, you know, the wine room at the Dolphin was probably one of my favourite rooms that I've been involved in. Nice. A, a bit like North Bondi Italian food yeah. and, you know, those type of rooms don't come every day of the week. No, no, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Mate, um, you've had like a huge celebrity following in a lot of the restaurants or, you know, clientele, I should say. That can be a double-edged sword, really. How do you manage that? but still make every customer feel special. It's quite interesting because a lot of the celebrities sort of started their career. Like, let's talk about Australian celebrities. You know, they sort of started their careers with me. A classic example, Kylie or, you know, Anthony LaPaglia or even people like Nicole or Baz Luhrmann and so on. You know, they were all sort of clients of mine 30 years ago back at Cafe Cucina where their careers were starting. And so we've all grown together. And everyone's, you know, different people have excelled in different ways. But they're sort of like, from, from that point of view, I don't really see them as celebrities. They're more friends that have been very, very successful. But, in, you know, there, it is a double-edged sword because sometimes we get, you know, we get labelled as a celebrity hangout, right? But, um, you know, we have some really strict policies. We've never called the press when celebrities come in, you know, and we're having no photographs, you know, in the dining room during service. And, you know, so a few little bits and pieces that allow very high profile people to feel very comfortable. Yeah. But I suppose well, that's part of being an international restaurant is you know, you're open to everyone, but everyone's welcome. You know, I, I don't think that we have a VIP service. I think we just have an exclusive service. It's a bit like first class. Once you pay, you're first class. And the Icebergs is not necessarily the cheapest restaurant in the world, but you know, it's like other great restaurants that sit on top of the ocean, they're expensive to maintain. Yeah. And not only are they expensive to maintain, their rentals are quite high, you know, because you are on top of the ocean. So therefore that cost is shared not just with us, but is also shared with the client in terms of the price range. That makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense, yeah. Mate, what's the most confronting thing you're facing right now in your business or in your just life? Just COVID, really. Right. I think that the, um, the unknown, you know, that's all. You know. Yeah. Especially, at the, I suppose, at my age now that I'm mid-50s, you know, I don't want to take the risks that I, that I would have taken, you know, 20 years ago. 
So, you know, I just sort of felt that I'd got to a point that my business model was quite stable and, you know, I'd sort of seen a future of things that I wanted to get involved in and so on. So, um, you know, that's probably just the unknown. I'm working on a project in Byron at the moment, which sort of came about through COVID as well. And I suppose that during that period, I really started thinking more and more about lifestyle because, again, it can come and go very quickly. Yeah. Like my five-year plan just went over COVID, you know, and we had a very detailed closing and we were very... There's another, you know, handful of really restaurants that really managed to deal with the COVID situation quite well. So the icebergs is probably in a much stronger position than it was pre-COVID. Wow, is that right? But business is great because we managed, we spent that time really looking at our model and really working out what we wanted to do and so on. Yeah. But um, it's the recovery that's really difficult, you know. Yeah, yeah. The financial recovery, you know. No, no, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What do you wish you knew when you were 20 that you know now? Too hard to answer, <laughs> really. <laughs> yeah, that's asked. a big question. I'm not quite sure, you know, again, no. when I was 20, I just, I'd say, you know, sometimes I, I wish that I had what I had, what, what I had at 20 now and I had that strength, you know? Yeah. And that's what we spoke about before, about the fact of being able to open up a number of different restaurants that were incredibly successful that sort of changed the landscape of this country. And they were opened with no budgets, no forecasts, just with a gut feeling, you know, being authentic, you know, and really believing more in delivering a product than delivering a concept rather than delivering a bottom line. You yeah, know? yeah. So, you know, I suppose it's just two different times in my life. So I'm quite, I'm quite happy with the knowledge that I had back then. And sometimes I really miss that, miss having that freedom of just being able to do things like that. Yeah. yeah. No, cool, mate. Um, just about to wrap up, uh, just briefly on 10 pieces, your fashion label. Yeah. Um, my wife's been wearing a bunch yeah, of the I've pieces. No, I've noticed, uh, yes. And uh, absolutely loves them. Uh, is that something we're going to see more of? Yeah, no, that's, that, that would be, you know, that, that's something that I've always sort of dabbled in here and there, you know. So I've always done collaborations over the last 20 years with different designers, you know, from Melbourne to, to here in Sydney. and. Ten Pieces started about seven, eight years ago, but it started really as a collaboration and almost like just one-offs and was never supposed to be so serious. And yeah. I suppose we sort of still have a little bit of that attitude towards it. We don't necessarily want to be the biggest brand in the world. We just want to make clothes that we want to wear and that we feel really represent who we are, you know, as Sydney siders. Um, yeah, and like, you know, hopefully over the next five, six years, it will continue to grow and who knows where it goes. That's, yes, that's yeah. cool, man. That's yeah. exciting. Um, when you emptied the, the Bondi Icebergs pool and had the, the fashion parade in there, that was pretty cool. Yep, very iconic. <laughs> yep, that was great. That first show again, that was, that was almost like what we'd done 20 years ago in restaurants. We put this range together that we thought was pretty cool and had a really good aesthetic to it and we had fucking no idea of any show. Like, show never, like apart from doing shows for other labels, so I'd worked with Subi and done a couple of shows with them and so on. But, you know, I never really put my own show together. And it was something that just happened overnight. Someone just said, oh, you should do a show. And so we just brought in all these people that we worked in and we wrote our own, you know, Nick, Nick in Nighttime from the Vanchies, you know, wrote the score and we, you know, brought in some friends to help us style it. And, you know, it just sort of like was, you know, we just styled it over a few bottles of wine and we, we did the show and it ended up being like, you know, top show of the last 20 years. So... It just, again, it just happened with, yeah, let's have some fun. It's great, mate. You know, 
fucking fantastic. Yeah, I sort of like doing things like that. Just have some fun and it's not too serious and they tend to be the best things you do anyhow. Absolutely. Yeah, I think often the more serious you get in trying to solve a problem, the further away you get from a great solution. Yeah, totally. That's that's kind of how Kate and I generally approach the obstacles and the barriers in life. Um, mate, thanks again for, for having us and having... Uh, thanks, Lee. I hope that was okay. I'm a bit, you know, it's early morning for me still. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mate, we'll, we'll let the, um, the audience judge whether it was okay. I've really enjoyed it, so thanks for your time. And, thanks, you know, buddy. Thanks for your fucking cultural contribution to Australia. Thanks, Lee. Talk soon. Thanks, buddy. Bye. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling a little peckish after that chat. If you're in Sydney, do yourself a favour and head to one of Maurice's restaurants. Iceberg's Dining Room and Bar, Bondi Beach. The website, idrb.com. And Chickabella, which is at Bondi and Parramatta. That's chickabella.com.au. Check out the show notes for the spelling. Next week's guest is legendary producer and entrepreneur, Mark Fennessy. Hands down, the most prolific and successful Australian television producer and content creator of the last two decades. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review where you have that option on your platform, whichever platform you're listening on. Thanks for listening in, guys. Hey, um, I'd love to hear your ideas for future guests as well, so don't hesitate to send them through. Head to the website theblankcanvas.com.au for my contact details and um, send them through. Until next week, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Millevich production. <laughs>